0: and welcome to Mixbus with me, Kevin Paul. This series aims to allow some of the best producers, mixers, engineers and other music industry people to discuss their careers and their approach to music. The success of this series depends on people hearing it, so don't forget to tell your friends if you like what you hear and remember to give it a five-star rating and please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes, special offers and promotions. This episode is brought to you in association with KMR, the UK's leading independent pro audio retailer and recorded in association with Audient and the ID44. It's also brought to you in association with FilePass, a file sharing platform built specifically for the needs of the audio industry. It allows your clients to hear your mixes in the way that you want them to hear them. Find out more at kpmixbus.com and follow us on facebook.com slash kpmixbus, and at kpmixbus on Instagram and Twitter. Danny, welcome to Mixbus.
1: Hi mate, nice to be here.
0: Yeah, how are you? Good. Let's start with today and what you're up to. Rhythm Riders, how, how did that come about?
1: Rhythm Riders just came about because I was introduced to Jummy Zeb from Aswod by a mutual friend, and we got on really well, we hit it off really well, right right from the beginning. And then he started coming down to my old studio, where I used to be, and he, he would bring in Tony Gadd, the bass player, with him, his partner. And um, we just started messing around with some ideas, and it turned out they were also working with, with Tim Bran at the same time, who I knew from from his time in in Dreadzone, and I would worked with quite a bit, and is also a good mate. Yeah. So me and Tim just um, put some rhythms together, some tracks together, and then we just de- we developed it, and um, it was a good experience. I'd always been into Aswold from when I was a kid. You know, I'm yeah, from sure. West, West London, and as Asward are from sort of Labrick Grove, which is where I was born, and um, they were kind of like. I suppose when I, when I was growing up in the 70s, they were the kind of reggae version of the Clash. Let's say you had the Clash from the rock side yeah. representing West London, and you had Aswad from the reggae side, and those were the two musics that I sort of mainly grew up with. And um, so I was all, I was a huge Aswad fan. I mean, yeah. they they were fantastic live. They had a fantastic live sound. I think Jummy and Tony probably the best rhythm section, certainly the best reggae rhythm section, if not the best rhythm section that London's ever produced. And um, so, yeah, it just it just fed from there. But, you know, we weren't doing reggae. It was like bringing their harmonies and their songwriting skills into a sort of more electronic kind of domain to try and do something different. And then from that, we had all sorts of remixes done by by sort of contemporary producers and, and DJs. So we'd have like garage mixes dubstep mixes, you know, hip-hop mixes, house mixes, whatever, deep house mixes, um, which is kind of interesting because it took it in a lot of different yeah. directions. You look back on what they did, the film Babylon was, was like a huge That's thing right, when, yeah. when I was a kid, and Warrior Charge was the soundtrack to Babylon, uh, which was an instrumental 12-inch that Aswell put out at the time, which was like like in the streets of London where I come from, that was like an anthem sort of thing, you yeah. know, that, and, and the whole film was about sound system culture which is kind of um probably the thing that had the biggest impact on on me musically was being a kid right. 14 15 going to to sound systems you know when, when i was still at school and um
0: do you remember some of the names of the sound systems you go into
1: yeah i probably remember all of them but some of them aren't around anymore Cap- i mean saxon is still going Sa- yeah. saxon is still around the sound system that was always my favourite was Observer. Okay. And Observer still exists, but I didn't find them at Carnival this year, but that, they were like the... They always had like um, they'd always play out of the back of an old van at carnival and the big old speaker boxes that yeah. they made. Yeah. And they were the first ones I saw messing around with, you know, fog horns and and like sirens and all that and all that kind of stuff. They used to make it themselves. Now you get apps on your phone for all of that, but they, they were doing all that kind of thing. So observer. Then there's ones that I don't think are still there anymore. There was one called Entebbe. There was one called Abba Salam. And they used to always be in weird places. Like you'd have them in like. I remember going to a sound clash in Acton Town Hall.
0: Yeah.
1: And it was like in a town hall, you know. I can't imagine you could ever do something like that. Two big, you know, two big, big sound, sound systems, systems in yeah. there. People smoking weed, all the whole thing going the You know, and you, that was just madness. And other places like um, Acklam Hall, which later became subterranean, yeah. um, that right. was a kind of community centre under the, under the flyover. In the 70s, and they had sound clashes in there, and I remember going to one. And it was Shaka, was one of the sounds, and literally everything was vibrating around. It felt like <laughs> even the Westway was vibrating. The concrete yeah. wasn't, but everything was shaking. You know, and for me, those were the real uh, formative experiences of my life. It was there yeah. I got the sort of thing of bass. Bass isn't really something you listen to; it's something you feel. feel you know, yeah. you feel it in your stomach, and you kind of that that stayed with me ever since, really, those kind of experiences. And it was at the time, I mean, I used to know... I grew up with, like, black kids and Asian kids, but I used to go with my mate Baz, and we were both white, and we were, like, 15, 15, I'd say, and we started going. And at the time, there was no white people in in those things. Maybe a couple of women that would be with a few dreads or something, but on the whole, there weren't any white kids there, but nobody ever bothered us, you know, because they could say, well, what are these two, two white boys doing here? Obviously, we were feeling the music and stuff, yeah. and it feels weird to say that now, because now you go out and everything's all mixed up, which is as it yeah, should be. Yeah, homogenised, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. you you can go to a sound system. All that kind of Abishanti and all that kind of stuff that's going on now, that wasn't really around then, but you, you can go to any of those kind of things and you'll see a mixture of, of races, which is great, which is one of the things I love about London. But back then, there wasn't too many of us that were... Sort of um, going to those kind of things, you know. Yeah. But um, yeah,
0: I mean, it was a very different time, wasn't it? It was a very different time socially, yeah. you know, and, and politically. Yeah. You know, how did you end up making music?
1: I'd always played drums from when I was a kid. I wasn't a brilliant drummer, but I had a drum kit at home up in the loft, and I used to just play. And I had a real surreal tape, and I used to lay down loads of drum tracks and play percussion over the top. And then I'd get like bits of Apocalypse Now and put it over the top and just mess around with things like that. That's what I was doing when I was a kid before I was in any band or anything and I used to just make these kind of like long percussive tapes. I wish I still had some of them of me playing drums and percussion with like loads of bits of films and and bits of sort of um, you know, audio and stuff. I used to go to the ICA and um, you could... I can't remember what you did but you could get recordings from there. You could get all these kind of like... You could get all this vinyl, but they had all these pressings of things like speeches and things about yeah. riots and demonstrations and revolutions, and you could record it from them. And again, it's kind of like, now that just sounds ridiculous, because you can go online, yeah, get everything, and in yeah. five minutes you can find the most obscure. But in those days, you, you had to actually go out to find your your material. It was like later on when... when you know, into breakbeats and all that kind of stuff and samples, you'd have to go and spend years trolling around shops, getting loads of crap records yeah, and taking course. them home. Digging in Spending, the crates. Yeah, digging in the crates, yeah. you know. So, yeah, so that's how I started, up in, up in my loft at home. And then, you know, I started to play with, with other people and stuff. And um, I knew Carl from um, from around West London and stuff, and he played drums as well. He was actually a much better drummer than me. But we had similar kind of ideas, you know, we we sort of came up through... We were influenced by punk, you know, punk was a big thing, but we were a bit too young to even go to the gigs in the beginning. A bit later on, I would go and see The Clash and all of those kind of bands, and I loved The Clash, I never saw The Pistols, but that kind of energy from punk was another thing that really yeah. stayed with me, so we had that, and it was like for me like growing up in West London at that time you'd have all these different sort of tribes of people but you'd all kind of know each other so when you were at school you'd have some mates I don't know how it was for you because you're a bit younger than me but, but but you'd have like some mates that were like soul boys and they'd be into soul and jazz funk and they'd have certain clubs they'd go to to yeah. dance and, and, and listen to music then you'd have other mates that were like West Indian and they'd be deep into mostly into reggae then you'd have other other mates that were into new wave and punk then then you'd have people that are into Bowie but you all kind of knew each other and you'd go to each other's houses and you'd hear each other's music so I had black mates that knew about sort of the buzzcocks and sort of the damned and all that kind of stuff they wouldn't necessarily go to the gigs but they understood it and they kind of respected it and and likewise you know soul boys might go to punk gigs and so but for me, I kind of absorbed all of those different things and I kind of, I liked a bit of all of it, but the the biggest thing for me was reggae and David Bowie, you know, and David Bowie was sort of like, I must have been about 10 when Space Oddity came out, but then every year after that throughout throughout the 70s, so from when I was 10 to when I was 20, but he put out a different album every year completely different and I kind of like I, I, that was like a guiding sort of presence through sure. through life and I finally met him with you didn't I knew yeah, because he was right. working with you at Mute yeah, that's
0: right.
1: and I was doing a remix for The Creatures and, and and I turned around and he was dancing in the corner and it was like David Bowie's like bloody hell but he was like That was amazing. He was such a humble... I remember him sitting in the kitchen with you and and the other sort of engineers and stuff eating takeaway curry off his lap. That's right, yeah. He was an ordinary guy, very ordinary. Amazing, amazing. So when we started making... When me and Cole started making music, it was kind of like we had that punk attitude. We had the reggae thing and we we knew loads about kind of like funk and, and stuff like that. And you had all of the sort of like electronic funk i don't even know what they call it now but there were labels there was stuff like d train do you remember all that stuff you're the one for me and and rocker's revenge and all that kind of stuff which was kind of like electronic electronic soul music really i don't even know what you call it even to this day but very influential because a lot of people now are name checking that that stuff prelude records and things like that so there was just so much kind of stuff to absorb plus
0: so this this would have been about nineteen eighty what three yeah so,
1: something like that yeah yeah but about then and, and so was,
0: just before the explosion of dance music before
1: that yeah, yeah just before that we were messing around with stuff so we were, reggae was a big thing we always were messing with bass lines and beats and I was going to Berlin a lot and used to hang out in Berlin and um, mainly with a guy called Mark Reader who was a guy from Manchester who was kind of um, part that whole joy division new order sort of thing he's made films and documentaries about him. he he lived in berlin and used to stay with him right. and we used to go to all of these kind of avant-garde berlin like electronic yeah. clubs and stuff you know and they were making all this really new music with you know with analog synths and and little bits and pieces and stuff and and there was a scene going there that was completely different to anything else that was going on in the world and berlin was a kind of during the Cold War this was still and it was like a closed sort of West Berlin was closed you had the communist bloc all around it and you just had this little island of of kind of freedom there where I don't mean freedom from communism I mean freedom to just do what you wanted because the government the German government weren't really interested in Berlin because it was it was miles away from the rest of West Germany plus if you lived there he didn't have to pay tax and he didn't have to do national service. That's so it. loads of p- kids from all over West Germany went to live in Berlin. You could get a huge loft space for next to nothing. So it was a really creative place. It was full of artists. So all those guys like Anschutz and Neubau and yeah. DAF, all of those people, plus yeah. loads of people that you that you'd never heard of, you know, and a lot of people that I'm sure like with Daniel Miller's contemporaries were were, were there yeah. and stuff you know so you were hearing all this kind of music electronic early electronic music which was really interesting and um so we were we were kind of I was bringing that back you know loads of obscure like 7 inches from berlin
0: were you DJing then
1: yeah yeah i was DJing from sort of like the late 70s you know but i was playing yeah. reggae mostly and a bit of that kind of like Funk and stuff, you know, pre pre hip hop, you know. So I was I started playing, at just kind of like, you know, illegal parties and stuff, you know. Um, not yeah. in, in any clubs or anything at that stage, and and then I started going to New York, quite early in the eighties, and I, and I got there, and hip hop was blowing up, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah. So I've been like what eighty three three. 80 First time I went to New four? York was eighty, and
1: right. and I didn't really catch too much of it then, but then. By about eighty three, eighty four, 84, I was going there all the time. And I met Linda and stuff, yeah. so I was over there a lot. And so I saw loads of the kind of, like, the this talent that was coming up, you know. Like, you, you know, i go... Again, it was a bit similar to the reggae thing it, because I was going to places like the Harlem Apollo, where you'd have Curtis Blow, Run DMC and Trouble Funk on the same bill, you know. Amazing. And it was in Harlem and there was no white people. And That's I had f- locks yeah. down to my fucking, I shouldn't swear, <laughs> probably, I had locks halfway down halfway down my back, you know. And so I'm going, I'm going up into Harlem and I'm going, going into these places and thinking, whoa don't know if I should even really be here, but people were coming up to me. Again, It was there was only black people there. And, and they were going, wow, man, can I just touch your hair? Can I just touch it? And not, nobody ever gave me any grief, you know. I'd go to places like the Inferno and the Nest, and these were like hip-hop clubs. Wow. Where, yeah, yeah. You know, Jimmy Spice, I might be playing Eric B and Rakim, the Sonic, all of these kind of people. Amazing. And it would kick off in there sometimes because there'd be fights between like Brooklyn and Queens or whatever. And I'd just be stood in the middle. Maybe <laughs> come with Carl sometimes. And and it was all kicking off, but nobody ever bothered us, you know. Again, I think they just thought, fair play, you know, they've taken a risk, they've come here, they must be into the music, you know, and we met, I met sort of quite a few I met guys from the Bronx and stuff that were just like proper street people with the Kangols and the yeah, chains and yeah. all of this and the clothes they used to wear, which was kind of coming out of the 70s into the 80s, it wasn't quite the, the fashion that it turned into <laughs> later on, you know. Put, you know, turtleneck jumpers with big chains and kangals and stuff. But I'd chat to these people and I get to hang out with them and they would give me like mixtapes. And when you know something that annoys me now, the mixtape is like what they call a mixtape now. It's not a it's not a tape, and b it hasn't been mixed. it's is like a compilation of tracks. <laughs> In those days, a mixtape where a DJ had made made a cassette and he mixed yeah, it, and yeah, they give right. me these 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 tapes and stuff with all this kind of music on. You know. And I was going to the clubs, I was going to the shops and I was like looking for breakbeats and I was kind of like going to finding the same shops where like Africa Band Battle would go and the you know, there was a shop in Times Square I used to go, there was one downtown in Saint Mark's Square. And I chat to the guys in the shops and say, like, "Oh yeah, Bambat was in, and he he bought this." I mean, what is it? It's like it's a Hari Krishna album. It's like, well, there must be a break on it. All right, I'm going to have that. And I think sometimes they were winding me up, you know, because I get this I get this Hari Krishna album back to London. and I'm going through it. So where's the break on this? There's not even any drums on it, you know. So you know, sometimes they they get you at it. But you know, I come back with like suitcases full of of vinyl, you know, as as it was back then. So so then that that hip hop thing to me it was kind of it was kind of their punk, you know. It started, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Started at the same time as punk, you know, in the late 70s in New York, but it didn't filter over. Here, I suppose, until Rappers Delight was the first, first I heard of it. And then, but you know, luckily I was going over there when it was really like New York was fantastic then. You know, New York was before Giuliani, before they had the big clamp down on, on graffiti and everything, yeah. and, and before AIDS and before crack. Those, when AIDS and crack hit New York, it really changed New York for the worst. But before that, you could go out all night, every night. You wouldn't, wouldn't have to know where you were going. You just go out. And you find a place to go. There'd be an art opening. I met a lot of those kind of like graffiti artists that were just starting yeah. to exhibit down downtown and stuff like that. And um, you would just meet people. And the scene was really small there, and it was really small here. And it kind of overlapped a bit between London and New York. So I was going back and forth, first to Berlin, then to New York, and all of those kind of things, together with the kind of what you have from growing up in London, which was the reggae and the new wave and the punk, punk and, and, yeah. and everything. All of that was kind of what what we put into Renegade Soundwave, really. So when, when we started making records, we had all of this huge kind of like influences, ar- influences, loads influences, and, and, an yeah, and of the wave,
0: yeah, like the wave of all those cultures,
1: all of those things, which is kind of like you, you know. So I think that's why we made something which at the time anyway was quite unique because it's partly the way we worked and partly the fact that we had all these influences that we allowed ourselves to be open to, you know. And um, we just poured all that out once we started, you know, to, to, to make music. All of those things were um, crucially important, you know. Yeah.
0: What was the first record that you made as, as Renegade?
1: As Renegade Soundwave, we, we we did some demos, but it was just me and Gary because Carl had disappeared somewhere and me and Gary made some demos and, and we we took them in and then Mark Moore got in touch with us. From S Express. Yeah, from S Express and he yeah. was he was doing A and R for Rhythm King. So Rhythm King Oh yeah. So Riven King had the Bass, oh, the base early, left field, early left field, Express, yeah. Merlin. Um oh, yeah, Merlin, yeah. The A few, yeah. few other bits and pieces, you, you know. Um, and Mark, it was mainly Mark that brought them in, and I knew Mark because I used to DJ. We used to, There was a club called the Mud Club.
0: Yeah, I remember the Mud Club. as That was the first club I used to go to. Yeah, that
1: was wicked. In, on underneath underneath the Astoria.
0: Underneath
1: that's the right, Astoria, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And Mark was the DJ there, and uh, he played a wicked cross section of, oh, was of awesome. music, and, you know, Amazing that was. Music. Those times were really interesting because then again you had guys like Mark who were influenced by all sorts of stuff as well. So you'd go out and you would hear hip-hop, you'd hear disco, yeah. you'd hear this and you'd hear, hear the odd reggae track, even the odd new wave track that you could dance to. And that was a period I loved. And New York was like that as well. And I used to DJ in New York at a place called Save the Robots, which was a kind of illegal after-hours place. And that was like... So when I was hanging out in New York, I got asked to play, I got offered to play at this place called Save the Robots. I didn't know what it was. So it was on the Lower East Side before it got gentrified. It was then, it was real Scorsese, sort of mean streets, you know, that's yeah. that. It was like, it was crumbled Italians, down. Yeah. yeah. and it was like mafia. It was sort of a bit gangy. It was a bit this, a bit that. But you'd have places that after hours, places, legal places. So this was like a whole, one of those old brownstone buildings, but it was very narrow. and You had a little... All the floors were quite small, but they had about four or five floors. And it was you could go there and drink. It didn't I think it opened at five AM. And you so the people that would go there would be like people who'd been working in clubs, people who are still wanting to go out after yeah. clubs, hookers, pimps, transvestites, <laughs> you know, all all kind of um all, all all sorts of people. And it was a really great collection of people as well. So I started playing in there. And I took over from a guy called John Hall, who John Hall looks a bit like a 70s disco guy. He had, a, he had the moustache and the Hawaiian shirts and all of this, and he was like the guy who played there. But he played disco. He just played disco. I started playing there, and I started playing hip-hop and breaks. And all these people were coming in, all these Puerto Ricans and, and stuff were going, wow, man, we never heard this music before. Where are you from? I said, oh, I'm from London. And they were like, "You're from London, and you're playing this. You know this music," and it was really weird. And then people started coming down, like Marley Marl and and um, Run DMC's manager. And even Run DMC came down. Fascinating. And 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 they get behind the decks and start chatting to me, and because they, they found it really odd that there was like a kid with locks. <laughs> from London who was playing hip hop and, and breaks At and six I was in the morning. And cutting up breaks in this <laughs> after hours place surrounded by transvestites and this that and the other. So and they would come and they would give me records so I got all like the early cold chilling stuff like it's a demo. Wicked. Remember that DJ Palmer yeah, yeah. I had like yeah. the first fucking pressings of those tunes but they really? gave them to me, you know what I mean? And I've still got them. And it was really weird and there was Mafia guys there and there was like I remember one 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 night there was these guys there and they were obviously sort of mobbed up, you know, and they had, like, suits on and stuff, and they were, obviously, they weren't really party people, you know, like, (laughs) and they were just kind of standing there. I was thinking, oh, man, what's going on? What have we done here? And one of them came up to me and goes, yo, can I ask you something? And I said, yeah, yeah, sure. Will you play a record for me? And I thought it was going to be something like... Andy Williams or something, or some Italian figure, said, so, you've got that record, um, Sucker MCs by Run DMC. Oh, wow. And I said, yeah, I have. Would you play that for me? I said, of course I would. Yeah, I and love I that track. It. And then he came back and said, oh, this is my neighbourhood, right? Anything goes down here, I have to know about it. Anybody anybody ever troubles you here? You know, you look outside, you see my car, and there's all these like, motors outside, immaculate, and this like <laughs> derelict ghetto, but yeah. no one was going to touch them because yeah. they knew who they were. So they said, you know, anything you want, anything, anything, just come to me. And I never did. You know what I mean? But it was like. That's
0: an endorsement that it's good to have in your back pocket. Yeah. I mean, that was (laughs)
1: like. Those, those were amazing times, you know, those kind of times you would just fall into things, things would happen, you know, things would happen and you'd just like, you'd be young, you'd just get on a plane and go somewhere, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't all the sort of strict controls that there are now yeah, and everything, yeah, you know, so so yeah, so I started DJing like like that and then I came back here, I started DJing properly in more proper clubs and also doing like do like warehouse parties. So around about the time when we when we started Renegade Soundwave, I had a a sound system called Metro with my mate Frank and Frank went on to be like a Greenpeace eco-warrior, he was one of the guys, you know, what the Russians arrested when they stormed that oil rig. Oh, yeah. And they put him in jail in Russia for three months. Well, oh. Frank Frank was one of them. now He's like proper hardcore activist, you know, lovely bloke, you know. But we, me and him used to do these parties. And for me, it was about the music. For Frank, it was more like breaking into abandoned buildings and sort of um, and trying to dodge <laughs> the, the police. The anarchy. Yeah, he, yeah, he sure. loved all of that. So, yeah. we, you know, and like Shawdish at the time was like nothing like it is now no, you of know, course. it was an abandoned desolate area That's right, I just a few like that Bangladeshi well. families living yeah. there and that. so you could go down to these places like Rivington Street and Curtain yeah. Road and these places that now have got like you know, Soho her house on the corner and all this. There was nothing there, and you just take a pair of bolt cutters on a Saturday afternoon, you cut the you cut the chains and you go in there, you get a generator, you go up to John Henry's, you'd hire a sound system yeah. and you'd hire a rig. <laughs> yeah. Put it in there. Everything went word of mouth and you'd have a couple of thousand boy, a couple of thousand a few hundred people to come down. And we used to have a few, maybe two sounds, one playing reggae, one playing hip-hop and funk, and um, it was proper outlaw stuff. You know, the police had a dossier on us. They shut us down in the end, and they arrested quite a a few people that were sort of doing stuff with us. But, I mean, I've got loads of stories from those times that were kind of cool as well. But So that was was what was going on at the beginning of Renegade Soundwave, really. So I suppose we had all of this huge... You know, we were just kids still, really, but we had quite a lot of... um, we had quite a lot of experiences to, under our belt, you know, to to put into the into the music. What was the first record that you made? First record was Cray Twins. That was a demo that me and Gary did, and then Carl came back into the fold, and I basically Mark Moore. This is how it all started. Mark Moore said, "Well, you, I'm working with this label. Will you will you come down and and play them your stuff if you have got any stuff?" And me and Gary had just done two or three tracks in some studio somewhere, and uh, they were really rough. there was Cray Twins blue-eyed boy which ended up on the first and second albums and and the big uh, probably a version of cocaine sex and we played them to martin heath who was like the uh the, there was two guys there was martin heath and james horrocks i don't know if you remember them but james was more of a, a sort of club sort of guy and he didn't really like he wasn't really into into our music but martin was an ex-sandhurst sort of guy who decided to get into music. He's been hugely successful since then. He's done all sorts of things, and he was really kind of, you know, taken by it. He, it was it didn't really sound like anything else, and he was like, oh, I love this, I love this, we've got to put you in the studio. So we went in the studio, and we went to, um, at the time, before Mute moved to Harrow Road, they were up in, um, well, they had two bits, didn't they? One bit was in Westbourne Grove. They had an office there, and then they had a warehouse in King's Cross. Do you remember that? No, that
0: I, was... I know... I... I've heard of the warehouse, that but I, I been, weren't yeah. there then. That's
1: when you were probably, yeah, before your team might have been, probably even before you were at Conk. This would have been about 86 or 87 or something, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, so the head of. My time, my huh? That's
0: way before my okay,
1: time. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, when did I first know you then? About
0: probably
1: 90?
0: about 90. Italia 90, or? 90, well, I was at Conk at 91.
1: No, it would have been after So it would been yeah. like 92, yeah, something yeah. like that. Okay, so it's been about five or six years before that. So, uh, they had a warehouse up there where they used to store all the records and CDs. And in yeah. the corner, they had a little studio, not really very well equipped studio. There's some little desk in there, and they had Paul Kendall was was working in there. So we went in there to do to do um Cray Twins, and we we um actually came out with something that sounded pretty good. And you know we we kind of we spent. Forever on on drum sounds and things like that. You know, we'd spend like, each each kick drum would have like twelve parts to it, and same with the. <laughs> and we were smashing bottles on the wall for yeah. uh, for you know um for high hats and snares and, stuff, yeah. and all of this. And Paul was kind of all right with it. You know, banging chains and and there was like all these um, pawn shops. Just literally downstairs, around the corner, we were going in there, getting videos out, taking bits of sex sounds off them, yeah. and you know, sampling things, and and um, so that was the first, the first, um, the first record. And really, not long before that, the S nine hundred came out, right. and the S nine hundred is what made everything happen for 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 people like us because all, all of a sudden you could do all of this stuff that you yeah. couldn't before. Even though they had a tiny bit of memory in there, it didn't matter. You could loop things without having to have two copies of the record. You could loop things, record them. Yeah. You could, you, you know, you could... You could sequence them up. What sequencer would have been
0: about? Well, we yeah.
1: had the Atari. The Atari okay. running, running Notator. Notator,
0: yes. So it's still, it was out that... that.
1: Yeah, yeah. We, we we had... we we Yeah, Notator was just about out then, yeah. Yeah. We got a bit of money off Rhythm King and we bought... um. We bought an Atari, and we bought a couple of keyboards and a, and a drum machine, and um, and a sampler, and a sampler. Yeah, a, a couple of a couple of S nine hundreds, which had about a tiny bit of memory in there, mm-hmm, you know. Yeah. And you know, but you, it was just it was just incredible, you know. What you then that kind of it was such a liberating thing, you know, for people that weren't proper proper musicians. Even if you were a proper musician, it was still. Was full of potentials. You could be the best musician in the world. You could still, that sampler would still allow you to do stuff you could never have dreamt of yeah. before. If it's just looping yourself or using other sounds to go with it. So so we would have, like, you know, we'd play bits of the tracks, like the bass lines we, we always wrote and the drums we always programmed. We made the sounds and everything. And, you know, I had bits of keyboards and stuff, loads of samples, loads of samples, some that were unrecognizable some that we just slapped straight on there and, and nobody really nobody really knew what sampling was either. That's and the, right, record, yeah. the record company didn't know. Nobody was getting sued or anything. So we, we we would make this you know, so we did that first single and um we got really good reviews for it. They were calling us the the British Public Enemy, which we weren't at all, but it was because of that radical...
0: That's a nice accolade. Was, yeah, I mean, for mm, me, that was like... A great people
1: reference. were ringing me up and going, can I speak to the British Public Enemy, even though we've made a record, you know. <laughs> and um, so that, that yeah, no, that was the first one, and it made a bit of an impact. I mean, lyrically, it was like, it's about the Cray Twins. Gary's family were linked with them by some way I can't really quite remember, but he... So the lyrics were about that, and then we came straight after that with... Um, with cocaine, sex, which kind of got banned and stuff. I don't think even John Peel played it. And to me, that was a a better record, and that that still stands up. I actually still play that out. There's a dub of that um, Turbo Lust mix. It was my my dub of that, which I did. Where did I do it? At, at that same that same studio yeah. the, the, in Kings Cross, in this little corner. It wasn't even a studio; just a corner of a warehouse. Yeah, and. Um, you can play that out now and you can play it to people and they think it was made now you know yeah. and it was made in 86 and that was I'm really proud of that
0: yeah but you can say the same about the other releases as well that you that are kind of associated with you like Ozo Breakdown yeah. and Phantom yeah did you know that you were creating something new and original then or were you just living in the moment <laughs> like was that
1: what? I think with the first two records the ones I just talked about we just went in the studio and did but we were kind of doing anyway, but we, we were able to do more because we had yeah. more equipment and we had an engineer. We'd never really had that before. And you are able to sort of do and spend a long, longer time and actually be in a studio environment, whereas yeah. before we might just be around someone's house or something. you know. But we didn't think, oh, we're, we're we're breaking new ground or we're doing anything extraordinary. It was just... That's why I spent so long talking about all those influences because yeah. for us it was just like we're just... We've got all this inside us. We're just putting it all down. It's like if you're a writer, you're just kind of writing, you know. So we didn't think, we we knew there wasn't really anyone doing the same thing, but we didn't think, oh, this is like a a big new thing. It's just kind of what we did. But looking back on it, it was really different to. to Oh, yeah, it was completely different. I don't think anyone was really doing it. You had hip hop. Yeah, you did. Which was hip hop. And in America. Slow tempo. Slow tempo. Maybe 110,
0: 112 BPM. That was a fast hip hop tune. Yeah. You had electro, yeah, but that had kind of gone.
1: Yeah,
0: by the time hip hop had come, electro yeah. had sort of disappeared, hadn't yeah. it? And then you sort of had the influences from work coming in.
1: Yeah,
0: and they were, you know, they, their tempos were like one twenty. Mm.
1: Yeah,
0: your sound, the British sound, almost it's almost like like you had created a British sound. Yeah, of that sort of electronica hip hop. Mash up really. It mash was kind of was, like a fusion. Yeah. It was yeah. a fusion, with wasn't it?
1: Punk attitude and, yeah, completely. and everything. It was it was all of Using that.
0: samples yeah. and stuff like that, yeah. which no one no one yeah. was doing
1: really. I mean the first record we sampled the Bell thing from the news at ten, that's how it started, you know, and, and all, all, you know, we, we had like the Pearl and Dean thing. Do you remember that you used to yeah. get, bah, 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 yeah. bah, and I played that on a on a, on a mad sound, you know, with that same thing. But people knew what it was, so there's all always kind of references. But then with the Phantom and I was on breakdown. It was a little bit different because I started them on my own, and we were by this time we were at Mute, the Mute that you know. Yeah. And as you know, there was two studios in there, so we were working with Flood, and we were up there for ages. You know, it's like I was trying to explain to to, to someone the other day. It's like in those days. You just go in the studio and you just stay there for months and then you come out of an album. Now you have to do all sorts of other things as well. So yeah. you do a bit of this, a bit of it take, everything takes much longer. But so we were working on the album for, for a long time and I was getting kind of we all fell up with each other. Probably Flub was sick of us and and every, it was just sort of going on and on and on. So I went in the other room with the the, the little studio. And I, I just started messing around. I did both of those things in one night. I did the drums and the bass really? for Phantom and probably a robbery. I just sat there and I did both of them, putting some more bits and stuff in it. And I thought, yeah, this something. This is something. And then Carl added some bits. We worked, I took it in the other studio and Carl added some bits. And then we mixed it. But it was really, really quick. And then we did, we put it out on the white label, and I was DJing a lot at the time, so I knew everybody. Well, everybody I knew a lot of the guys working in the main dance shops, which were so important yeah. in those days. And, I yeah, mean, Black all that's market, gone Black market groove records. Black market groove records. Yeah. City sounds. City sounds. You, you yeah, know, Holmberg, yeah, yeah. there was like you know a few of these places dotted around, and I'd go in there to get records anyway. This was like in the early days of house, I suppose, and and um, and then I gave them that, and they were like. Yeah, Danny, this is going to blow up. People are asking for it, asking for it, asking for it, and you could just feel that something was was happening with that. It was then the rave thing had started, and the other two, the two previous records, they they were very slow. They weren't, they weren't, they didn't fit into that at all. But yeah. but when the Phantom came out. You'd hear it everywhere. There was loads of pirate stations on. Then you'd so, put the radio on. You were going to hear it. People would drive past in the car. It was blasting out of the car. Yeah, was, like, was you know was what I mean? True. I'd open my window and I'd hear people, someone driving past of it. And it was kind of like that was a really like for me. And we sampled the Clash, White Riot on it. So yeah. we harked back again to that that punk thing. But it was a very, that was a very very London thing. You know, it was a very London thing and. um also, it kind of spread throughout the country because I still bump into people now. So oh, I was in Manchester when that came out. Did you know what that meant in Manchester, or do you know what that meant in I don't know Stoke or whatever? And you don't because you weren't there. Well, you but, weren't they, yeah. but it was it was uh, it was it was really the sound of, of of that period, you know. And I don't know there was other people doing stuff, but that that those those records were kind of. Uh, they were kind of militant records, in a way. Yeah, you know? they were.
0: Yeah, the the, the, the attitude of them. Ozone mm. Breakdown, did, did that not come before the fancy?
1: No, in the beginning, there were two sides. We yeah. put it out on this... So what happened with all of that? And it was, a, it was a something which I've never really been happy about because I started doing those two tracks and I was like, look, this isn't for the Renegade Soundwave album. We were doing the vocal album and we were doing great stuff... But it was one kind of thing. So this is something else. This is something else. And I wanted to put it out under a different name. And we mixed them with Flood, and Flood was you know, banging to it, you know. Um, yeah, we, 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 that would have been one you know, history of it. Yeah, yeah. And he still talks about Phantom and stuff, you know. So we, we, we did those those two. And I, and I said, look, I want to put these out under a different name. It, it's too, it doesn't really fit with what we're doing with Renegade Soundwave, you know. And um, But Daniel didn't want to do it, and neither did the other two and I think part of it was they didn't want me to kind of um, go off on a tangent you know because it's not really blowing my own trumpet but that's something that I created Carl added to it but I think the bones of both of those tunes yeah. came from me you know and those those records would have been good if if it was even just the drums and the bass and a couple of samples but but Carl added stuff to it which made it even better and stuff Gary wasn't involved in them so I wanted to do it as something else, and I wasn't going to leave Renegade Soundwave to do it. I just wanted to do it as something else, and it would have made much more sense because people became so confused because you had these things that were really happening on that whole rave underground scene yeah, before. Yeah. It was even on the Hitman and her and stuff like that. But it yeah. was it was it was kind of everywhere, you know. But you couldn't buy it. But but what they did is they kind of used those tunes to push Soundclash the album, but it didn't make sense. So what happened is then we had Space Gladiator a track off yeah. Sound Clash a vocal track off Sound Clash but they put the Phantom on the other side of that yeah I remember yeah and it was like but people people wanted to buy the Phantom so they bought the Phantom but even that it was there was always problems with distribution So they bought that then I was on Breakdown became harder and harder and harder to get because it had been on the B side of the Phantom, then the Phantom had come out, but he still couldn't get Ozone Breakdown. So then they put Ozone Breakdown on the B side of Probably a Robbery. That's right, yeah. The vocal. So people were mad trying to get Ozone Breakdown by this time. This was like a year later or something, and and it was still being played. So Probably a Robbery came out. We did quite a lot... we did a video for it. We charted. We charted? We charted. You weren't, weren't you on top of the pot? Yeah, we were. <laughs> and we made a video God, in, in Wormwood <laughs> Scrubs with the, the director of the bill. And all of this stuff, that, but you see, this, the thing of it was, is we really wanted to push it one way. And so they, they put the money into this, kind of, you know, probably a robbery. before thought it was catchy. Daniel did a mix, which was good and all of this. And it got a bit of radio play, Steve Wright in the afternoon and, and all this kind of stuff. But... It was selling because, because I was on Breakdown, breakdown <laughs> was on the other <laughs> yeah, side. It yeah. took like two hours to record and, and, and a few hours to mix, you know, and people were buying it because of that. And it was just daft. It didn't really make sense. They'd have been better off as a diff, under a different name Both of those records could have charted in their own rights, without you know. And I wanted to do a video with like people were coming up to mute. We look got all these footages of raves and the police shutting down raves and this that and the other. So I wanted to do like a a video based on all of this stuff. It's not going to cost much. It'll cost a couple hundred quid. You just buy the footage off this guy and we'll chop it up and we'll make it. But I didn't really want to know. So there was always this kind of like weird thing going on that people didn't really understand. You know, it was like people brought sound clash thinking it was going to be like the Phantom, right. and it wasn't. Or they bought the Phantom thinking it was going to be like the, like Sound Clash, and it yeah. wasn't. And we always had this kind of problem that ran right through. And then we did um, RSW in Dub, which was a second album, which yes. was half of it was versions, dubs of, of, of the first album, and half of it was new stuff or Stuff that hadn't made it on, the but the fountain wasn't even on that, and neither was I was on breakdown, so it's just like it, it, just, it was just silly. And people and that, and those those are the tunes really, regardless of everything that people associate with Renegade Soundwave. And I didn't even want it to be Renegade Soundwave, you know, I wanted it to be something separate. So, fine, we'll concentrate on the vocal thing and we'll do that. Daniel really wanted to push it in America and everything, which was all good reasoning because at the time. You know, people were lapping up English stuff in in the states and everything, and it it made sense to a degree. But I just wish they'd sort of um, they'd listen to me about the other thing because it it could have all worked differently. But having said that, the music's still there, It still sounds good, and we did the second album. Where, where did you get the name from, Mangetoutwood? Oh, that was in the beginning. I had a. Do you remember the Transformers before when it was the the there was a transformer, um, which was name was. Um, Decepticon soundwave. Yeah. And it was a robot that turned into a ghetto blaster. Yeah, of course, yeah. And I had that one. And you it'll be a ghetto blaster and you press a couple of things and it'll turn into a, a robot sort of thing. And I just thought that was a good good. So I I said, Well, why don't we call it Decepticon Soundwave, which is obviously much too long. But Gary then Gary turned around and said, What about Renegade Soundwave? I like Renegade Soundwave. So that's how it came about. And when he Brilliant. said that, it just made sense. So I had a word and he had a word. So it was 50 50, I suppose. But that and it was, <laughs> it was a you know, it was a name that you could sort of really, um, you know, you could be proud of. You For know. sure. Yeah. It, it, was, it was a good name and it really suited us as well. Then you made it dub. Yeah. A lot of the material was recorded that we'd done for Soundclash for the first album, so we'd either take the the, the multi tracks from that and mess around with them, or there was other stuff that we'd recorded that didn't make it onto Soundclash. And um, Soundclash, by the way, you know, Soundclash I thought was a name for the first album because. It was a clash of sounds yeah. all those different different sort of like angles we were coming from, and plus it was also a sound clash like I used to go to with, with the reggae sound system, so it, it kind of summed it all up really you know um I think in uh, for a lot of people didn't know it had anything to do with the, the reggae world, it was more like, oh, sound clash, sounds are clashing, and it yeah. kind of that's kind of what it was so throughout that that period when we recorded all that stuff with flood, um, we had a lot of stuff left over or a fair bit of stuff left over um so we just carried on really we just carried on remixing it and chopping it around and like again a lot of people did that very soon after us but we did it first and the reason we did it first was because for me growing up with reggae you'd buy like a dennis brown album and it'll be the vocal album then a couple of months later it'll be dennis brown such and such in dub it'll be the same album a dub version of it and you had that right across the board with reggae Gregory Isaacs all those kind of artists that that you'd listen to they put the vocal album out and then they do a dub version of it so I just thought it was a natural thing for us to do let's just do a dub version and and it meant that you could we used to put so much stuff on the tracks sometimes you couldn't even really hear some of it or sometimes it wouldn't get an airing because it would be a chance to kind of stretch them in different directions or maybe some of the ideas that hadn't got onto the first album because you were you were confined within a more song structure, which is a good discipline to have. But then this gave you the freedom to kind of take them off in in different directions. And um, a lot of people didn't get it at first. They were like, "Why well, don't understand this?" And I was like, "Well, look, just 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 what we're doing, you know." And we did it. And that was more sort of that was very sort of ready, readily received by the, the rave generation, you know, because you had tunes like Thunder and Women Respond to yeah. Bass in there that you could play out. Then you had more coming down tunes, so people were coming like back from the rave. And you, up, and you, yeah. yeah, you had stuff like Black Eyed Boy, which is, for me, one of our best-sounding tracks. I still still play that. And you had like Transworld Siren, and a lot of the tracks on there, I really think stand up to this day Pocket Porn dub, um, there's some really good tracks on there. So some that you'd hear when you were out and some you put on when you came home. And that yeah. was really the soundtrack to what was going on in, in, at in Britain at the time, you yeah. know, to, to a very large large degree. And, and then then you had, then the Orb did an Orb in dub and loads of people did a such and such in dub and such and such and such a dub, uh, you know, after that kind of thing. And um, it became... It became a kind of more normal thing for sort of white kind of alternative acts to to do a dub album kind of thing, you know. But um, I think it's fair to say we were we were the first to sort of do that, and we had a gatefold sleeve, double vinyl, so you could play all the tracks yeah, out. Yeah, I
0: remember that. Yeah.
1: And then a lot of the DJs in in the rave era, they would play the slow tracks because they, they were they double were pressed. Yeah, they play at double speed. Yeah. So so you go. Like, wow, you know you're. Playing. That, I mean,
0: that, and that would have been that would have been like almost jungle.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. 160, yeah. that would have yeah.
0: been like, you know, 160 BPM yeah. and you slow it down yeah. on the pitch control.
1: Yeah, so some of that was, and it and it was really getting towards that when the tempos were really speeding up. And, yeah. you, and I think they were just trying to play whatever they could, because a lot of that stuff you couldn't really play out. It wasn't meant to be played out, but whatever you could play out, they'd try and they try and, and play it out, you know, which was kind of fun and, and interesting and stuff, you know. Yeah.
0: What can't you live without when you're in the studio and you're making music? Do you have a favourite synth? Do you have a favourite uh-huh. uh, piece of equipment? Sample library, maybe, in your case? What, what do you kind of need or use... In, in all of your productions, or a lot of
1: them? I don't know, because it's it's changed now. You know, before you had to have loads of outboard gear and, and, and you know, you had to have all of your vinyl and all of your sample libraries and stuff. I don't use many samples now. What, what do you do instead? Play stuff or get people to play yeah, stuff, yeah. you know, or, or start off with a sample. I mean, I'm, do, I'm doing an album now, first one for years, which I'm about three quarters of the way through. And I had a... a for example, I had a sample, it was all based around a sample from a band called Traffic and a rock band called Traffic and I just thought I'm never going to get away with this and um, Primal Scream were working next door and I, I said to Andrew, I just can't, I don't know if I'm going to get away with this sample, he said oh, let's have a listen, So oh, I'll play that for you. So he came in and played it but he played it different so we got a whole new new thing out of it. I think there's some good soft synths now like serum and some some yeah, of those okay, kind of things yeah. I'll try and stay away from the native instruments because I think the the problem is now everybody's using the same tools and everything sounds the same yeah. you know I've, I haven't got much of my old gear I, I used to have like a Moog Prodigy and I used to have all sorts of bits and pieces that got lost along the way so I wouldn't say there's there's anything in in particular. I just sort of grab what's to hand. I might borrow. I mean, there's a word that's there. I might borrow something from.
0: I know you got the Sherman filter bank. Yeah, there.
1: I've still got my Sherman. Yeah, yeah which is that's, which that's is brilliant. which is a good because it's knobs and it's hands on and you yeah. can't do that with a mouse. You know, so there are. There, there's, there are things that is still, still nice to have. You know, I still, still like the analog synths. You know, I still like some of the synths that we used back in the day, like the Juno. Yeah, is still, still a One good. One O six. Good, yeah, that, yeah, that's still something worth, worth using. And you know, there's lots of stuff you can do in the box now that you, that you couldn't before. And, yeah. and you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not a sort of like. I'm not a mixed engineer like, like you are but there, there, there's sort of like a lot of stuff that, that really helps whereas before I used to think you're never going to get it sounding good unless you use, you've use you got a proper desk and yeah. that. Well, I haven't even got a desk in here anymore I sold my um, I had a Ghost yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Soundcraft which I sold recently to a couple of kids really vibey kids who came up here and bought it I was pleased about yeah. that they were going to make some good use out of it because it was just clattering up the place but it's yeah. a nice you remember it it's a yeah nice it's a great desk, desk. You know? I love
0: the sound of that, that you could really drive Yeah. you could really drive that desk
1: yeah I mean i think it's like i think if you're on a good day and and you and you've got a certain good energy that's what i believe you come in and you, you do something good and i think that's always been the way from the beginning to now it doesn't really matter where you are you can be in the best studios i mean i've worked in some great studios where you where you're sort of booked in for a week and it's residential and all the food's made for you you don't have to go anywhere it's in the countryside everything's fantastic not really come up with anything. But then other times you go, just come in here or something, it's just like a glorified storeroom, but if you've got the right energy, and yeah. do something yeah, good, sure. you know. And also having people to to, to, to bounce off and feed off, you yeah. know, if you've got somebody kind of like-minded and you're kind of like, you've got similar reference points, you know, and you, and you bounce ideas off each other, I'd say for me, that's that's the greatest thing, you know. Yeah. And what I like to do is I, li- I like to work with other people while I'm writing but I like to be left alone with the arrangements, and I've always been like that. Yeah. I don't really I like remember, I remember that having yet. to share that. That and that was always a problem in the band, and it's a problem with with anything because I, t- I I kind of think that's one of my strengths, and it's something I like to ponder over. And you can go too far now because you know, back in the day, you had to do everything on the fly. You know. Even before there was automation on this, you, that was it. You'd lay it down. All right, you could put a few takes down, and you can maybe chop between them. We'd have to have some poor bloke, That's possibly right, yeah, like you, a with a razor it, yeah. blade and yeah. a piece of chalk at yeah. 3 in the morning and loads of bits of loose tape lying on the floor, and, oh, I want to get that bit back, and you don't, <laughs> you know, you don't know which one. But you really had to concentrate, and you'd have like three or four people on the mix, one, one doing effects, one doing the faders, one dropping things in and out, and we're hoping that all, all the sinks don't go off and everything. Now, you can sit there forever, you know, and people, somebody told me the other day about somebody who spent the last 12 years making an album or something, and it's still not ready. it's somebody famous as well, Actually, I won't say who it is, yeah. but it's like you think, bloody hell, mate, you know. And you can do that, You can you can spend too much time, but I do really, that's the part of the process I really, really like. It's when you know you've got... Enough stuff in there, you know, you've got enough ideas, and then you get rid of the stuff that isn't really working, and then you work on the arrangement. and That I like to do on my own, you know, that, that's yeah. the sort of solitary bit for me that, that I kind of enjoy. But the indispensable thing is just good energy for me, yeah, really. Yeah, for sure. Yeah,
0: know. there's a good energy in this building here. I've yeah, said, I said that
1: to you yeah. when, I, yeah. when I arrived there. There's a good little vibe here. You yeah, know? yeah, I've done more here in the last, I've been up here for couple of years. I've done more up here since I've been here than I did for years before because I just decided to make a record you know and I didn't know if I could even do it anymore I was still doing remixes and I was still DJing and I was still doing bits of production for people and doing other stuff but actually starting to write an album I didn't even know if I could do it anymore and I came up here and I just made myself do it and then for like the first first sort of period of time I just sat there and I kind of forced it and I thought you shouldn't really be doing this if you have to force it but I forced it and then it gradually started to come and I got 14 tracks nearly finished and I'm Happy with it. I think it's really good, and um
0: well, I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, well, you will, man.
1: Yeah, it. I mean, one thing I've tried to avoid subconsciously, which I w- wish I wish I hadn't, is doing too much of the same thing or, or doing what you're kind of expected to do, and that's a really big mistake in some ways. Because I mean, look, I could have done 15 versions of the Phantom, and I yeah. probably I could have. I've probably could have rolled with that. You know, people have done that. If you think of like. I can think of a lot of people that had one sound and they just carried on with that sound for, for like 15, 20 years and slight diversions from it. So if I've done something once, I try not to do it again. not saying that I succeed in that, but if I think, oh, that's a bit too much like something else. Also, I try to be light, but I always end up being dark. So if I'm trying to get away from something... It's being dark, but I can't, and, and so what? What? Why do, you think, why do you think that is? just the way I'm that, built, Kev. I don't know is, that,
0: know. is that is that because of the, the the reggae thing? Maybe the sort of I mean, reggae is not necessarily dark, but it's maybe quite, it's just quite, a quite miserable miserable heavy.
1: Sort, I don't know, but I mean, no,
0: but you're not though. No, I mean, no,
1: I, I just make music. A certain. I mean, I don't make sort of like. I mean, I had, I've got a radio show that I do on, on Hall Radio, and last week my guest was um, Aston Harvey from The Freestylers, yeah. right? Now, Aston's been there as long as I have, and I really, really, really rate him. As a producer, as a musician, as a bloke, he makes music coming from kind of the same place as me, but it's very up, it's very up and feel good without ever being cheesy, right? And he can do that. I can't do that. I make dark music and, and I can't help it, and I try not to. And the people that I tend to work well with are kind of dark as well, you know. There's always, they've always got some kind of problems, you know, even if you don't know about it, and it, it kind of comes out like that. And I wish I could make really light, uplifting music and I think the music is uplifting that I do. I think it's uplifting and I think it's soulful and it's got a lot of sure, soul yeah. in it and stuff, you know. But it's dark and, it's, and you can only go so far with dark, you know what I mean? And so I wish I could sort of like get away from that. And even when I think it's up if you play it to people that, that don't know you and they're like, "Oh, it's a bit heavy, isn't it? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I
0: mean, but heavy is different to dark. Though, well, heavy in as heavy, much heavy as dark, though, dark.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, so, I mean, there's, there's that, you know, what, what I can't dispense with is a good bass sound. If you're going to have a bass in it, it's got to be, it's good, you, you know. I mean, you've you, you worked with me enough to know that that's just what, what I'm looking for. And light like vibes, I mean, you know, you and me did enough stuff together. It got, it got to the point when we were working off at Mute a lot, I would just leave you to it, really, because you knew what I wanted, and that was a really big, uh, for me. That was meant, right? Great. You don't have to sort of communicate with all this. Here you are. Here's all the parts. Kevin knows how it's got to end up, and it would kind of pretty much end up that way, which is which is a kind of good. We did a lot of good stuff up there in in, in those sort of last few years at Mute, but um, and the Riven Rider stuff as well. Yeah, so, sure. So, yeah, sounds good. You the know, said uh, yeah. this
0: sound that still play that
1: out. Yeah, there's there's some lovely lovely tracks on that, but um. Yeah, I'm just about vibes, man. I'm just about vibes and energy. You know, I'm not the most technically proficient person in the world, but I know how to, to make a good piece of music, you yeah. know. And, and sometimes it comes really quick, sometimes it's really slow. I never let go of it until I think it's good enough, yeah, yeah. you know. And maybe I should, but um, just that. But yeah, I wish I could lighten up a bit with it, you know, but I don't really know how, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: a great place to leave it, Then Thanks right, so man. much for All being right, on the mix, a pleasure,
1: man. No, thanks for asking me. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Mixed Bus with me, Kevin Paul. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe to the whole series on Podbean or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to join me for the next episode and until then, goodbye.